Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This Sunday is the 19th Sunday after Pentecost in the church, and the theme that you'll see across our readings is essentially going to be the idea of persistence. So we'll see Jacob in the Old Testament reading, Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 30, as he persistently wrestles with God. 2 Timothy 3, verse 14 through chapter 4, verse 5 will be our epistle text. There, the encouragement is for Timothy to endure, to persist in his calling as a pastor. And then the gospel reading is from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, where we see the parable of the persistent widow, who is persistent in her approach to the judge, as we ought to be persistent in our prayers before the king. All right, so we begin with the Old Testament text out of Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 30. It is just one paragraph, so I'm going to go ahead and read that that paragraph here, the whole text. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Penael, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. All right, I'm going to go ahead and jump straight to the trouble that I have with the ESV reading of this text, and it is that unfortunately in this case, ESV, the English Standard Version, which is the official translation used at this point by the LCMS, they went politically correct here. So in verse 22, and his 11 children, in the Hebrew text, the word is very clearly the Hebrew word for sons. Uh, You think of the name Benjamin, that Ben word is the Hebrew word for a son. So Benjamin, son of the right hand, for example. Ben-Hadad is son of Hadad. Ben-Benei Yisrael, sons of Israel. So here it's that son's word in Hebrew. But the ESV, again, going politically correct on us, translated it children instead of sons. Now, what's the issue that I'm making of this? A, we shouldn't do that anyway. We should use the word that the Lord has chosen to inspire inerrantly for us to have. But B, it's extremely relevant also in this situation because it's factually wrong now. The ESV text, not the Bible. The Bible is inerrant. It's the word of God. 
but because they translated it children instead of sons, you now have to count his daughters. And eleven would not be correct. We know at the very least he has one daughter by the name of Dinah. He may have had others. But this is factually wrong, the ESV reading. So, I struggle with that one. Disappointed by it. I was just pondering this morning if there will even be an opportunity in the future to have a Bible printed by a publishing house that's not gone politically correct. They're all doing it. Every one of these translations, as far as I know, NIV did it before we produced the new hymnal in 2006, 2007. They were already going that way. ESV has done it now, more recently. The Even the NASB, which is my favorite English translation, and their more recent editions, they've done it. And it's a it's a difficulty that we're facing. But with that corrected then, 11 sons, let's return to the text. The same night. This is the same night as when Jacob took and sent gifts ahead of him to his brother Esau, hoping to appease him perhaps, hoping to, to flatter him, butter him up a little bit so that the reception would be warm instead of hostile. He's still afraid of what Esau might do to him. So that very night after sending the gifts, he takes his wives, Leah and Rachel, and his two female servants, Zilpah and Bilhah. Interesting they're called servants here. They technically are also his wives, wives of a lesser status. Bilhah will specifically, in the account where Reuben takes her to be, well, to sleep with her before dad is dead, Genesis 35, she's specifically called a concubine. Concubines are lesser wives. It's a legal status. So you can have a wife and then a lesser wife. And that's what these are then to Jacob. Zilpah and Bilhah are slaves to his regular wives, Leah and Rachel, but they are to him as concubines. So he has four wives. The text will not normally phrase it quite that way. So he takes Leah, Rachel, Zilpah, Bilhah, and his 11 sons... He's going to have 12, but Benjamin is not yet born. In fact, uh, probably not yet even in the womb at the time of this account. They cross the ford of the Jabbok. Now, the Jabbok is the river that runs east and west off of the Jordan River. It connects to the Jordan River about 34 miles south of the Sea of Canareth, which you might better know as the Sea of Galilee. It's hard to know exactly which direction everything in this text is going to occur. They have been traveling from the north, from the land of Haran, the land of Leah and Rachel's father, Laban, Jacob's uncle. And they're traveling southward. They're eventually going to continue southward where they will run into his brother Esau. They stay the night in the camp. They eventually break that camp and they travel across the the Jabbok. And then they're going to end up having Jacob cross again in order to have the event where he wrestles with God. It's a little hard to keep up to completely know for sure which side of this they are all on. 
the most logical way that I look at it ends up being that Jacob and his family are continuing to move south where they cross the Jabbok River. He sends them further, that is further south, past the Wadi, that is the extended riverbed, which is called the Ford here in the ESV. And then he remains himself by the river rather than going further on. There are other options, but that's the one I I lean towards. Anyway, he's left alone, as we see in verse 24. And then suddenly, a man wrestles with him until the breaking of the day. We know this account as the account where Jacob wrestles with God. How do we know that the man is indeed God and not an angel or some servant of God like a prophet? Verses 28 and 30 are going to give us the important detail. Verse 28 says he has striven with God and prevailed. Verse 30, he calls the place Penael, face of God, because he's seen God face to face and lived. So those give us that necessary detail in the account that helps us understand that this is indeed the Lord. Now we could still press that a little further and say, well, is this God the Father? Is this the pre-incarnate Christ? and so forth. So you probably should, verse 24, be capitalizing the word man, that the man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. This is another thing just from having done the Hebrew study on this text recently. Uh, We've been studying through Genesis of my congregation. Verses 25 and and 26 are really choppy. Uh, It's really hard to know who's who at which moment. I'm going to read you my Hebrew translation of verse 25. He saw that he was not able in regards to him, and he touched against the basin of his upper thigh, and he dislocated the basin of the upper thigh of Jacob by means of his wrestling with him. You can see a lot of pronouns in there, and it's not it's not easy to know which pronoun is which. This is something where typically an English Bible translator will try to plug that gap for you. And so you might have heard as I read that through that the word Jacob, the name Jacob, only showed up in the verse once. But if you're looking at your English text, it's there twice. They stick Jacob in there uh, to, to give you a little further reading of how they understand the text works to make it a little clearer for you. Because again, if you read it from the Hebrew, it's just a bunch of pronouns all over the place that would be interchangeable. He and him, does that refer to God or does that refer to Jacob? There's only a couple of them that we can say for certain which is which as we move through that text. So it's God that touches Jacob's hip or upper thigh. It's God that dislocates his upper thigh, the upper thigh of Jacob. But is it God who notices that he's not able to prevail against Jacob? Or is it Jacob that recognizes he was not able to prevail, that is, be victorious against in the fight, the Lord? Is it by means of God's wrestling with Jacob, or is it by means of Jacob's wrestling with God? It's, it's hard to say for certain, and that's okay. The reason I bring this up is that the struggle of this text that we usually run into then is 
And it's the way it's phrased in English for us in verse 25. The man saw he did not prevail against Jacob. And when we recognize the man as God, God was not able to defeat Jacob in a wrestling match. Again, that can be alleviated because of the way Hebrew used the pronouns. It might actually be Jacob who struggled to prevail against the Lord, that he could not best him in the fight. And so at that point, God cripples him as a reminder. The other way, though, if we're looking at this as the ESV does, is that we have to imagine that God himself has chosen to limit himself. Because he could easily remove Jacob from existing if he'd wanted to. We can't best God in a fight. We are but men. So, God touches his hip, or his the sinew of his upper thigh, to be quite literal to the Hebrew. The, the idea here is going to be a reminder, just as he did with Abraham, going from Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. He's going to do with Jacob to Israel. God is putting a reminder in the mind and the body, even this time, of his servant. A reminder of who he is, a reminder of what he's promised, a reminder that he is the one who cares for his people. So Jacob's going to walk around for the rest of his life with this limp, and he's going to remember what happened at Penaal. His family's going to remember what happened at Penaal, and the people he comes into contact with, he will have opportunity to share that story. Hey, you know, normally you look otherwise to be in decent health. Why are you limping? Well, let me tell you about the day I wrestled with God. <laughs> Just imagine the storytelling that could come from that. But at this point, as we'll see at the end of the epistle text, not just storytelling. Do the work of an evangelist. Share the good news. Tell the story. So his name here is also going to be changed, but we'll see that in a little bit. For now, as we look at verse 26, Let me go, the day is broken. Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So Jacob is clinging to the Lord. That's actually a good thing. As our, our conversation sometimes around our Christian faith is that we would cling to Christ, cling to his promises. And that's what Jacob's doing. He's clinging to him. He won't let go. Again, we have to imagine the Lord limiting himself in this because he could just speak the word and Jacob would be gone. He could flick him upside the head. He'd fly halfway around the world. Um, I don't think that's an exaggeration even. The Lord is almighty. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. Jacob asks for a blessing. It's not clear from the text at this point yet if Jacob realizes just who it is that he has been wrestling with. Again, it will be clear. Jacob will know it when we get to verse 30. But did he recognize it while he was wrestling? Or does it come to him Does he learn of who this is by their conversation that happens afterwards? So asking for the blessing could be recognizing that he's simply against 
somebody who is great in this world, and so the, the great one to bless the lesser, he's looking for that. The other opportunity here is that he recognizes indeed that this is the Lord, and so he's asking for that blessing to be upon him. Again, either way, it's the movement of greater to lesser. When we talk about the word blessing, if it is greater to lesser, it is the giving of a gift. If it is lesser to greater, so when we bless the Lord, it's a giving of thanks. Rather than immediately giving him a blessing, God asks for his name. It's intriguing. The Lord does not need to ask this question. The Lord knows his name. But it sets the stage for the conversation that's about to come. He's going to say, well, Jacob. He answers very simply. And then God takes that name and he changes it. You shall, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob, as a name, means he who grabs the heel. Uh, you might like the phrasing better to say heel grabber. And this is a reference to the, the twins wrestling together in the womb back in chapter 25. He's going to take that name, which, by the way, ends up becoming an idiom for deception. And it's hard to know how that idiom came about in Hebrew. Did it come about because Jacob? So the name becomes the phrase Jacob or the, the phrase heel grabbing refers to deception because of Jacob as the deceiver? Or did it already have that connotation to it and Jacob just stumbled into that? don't know that we're going to be able to find the answer to that question. Now, the name is going to be changed to Israel, and it's hard to tell exactly what that comes from in the Hebrew text. The simplest reading coming from the verse seems to give us the meaning of the verb itself, and that, that is that you have striven with God and with men, and that's why we tend to talk about the name meaning exactly that, that you have wrestled with God, you have strived with God. El, the ending of the name, so it's actually in Hebrew pronounced Yisrael, the El is God. But the Hebrew verbal root, not so obvious. Uh, it could mean to be upright, so the upright of God, a reference to Jacob's faith. It could be from a different verb, that, uh, so that was Yashar. Uh, Sarah, which we don't really know how to translate, seems to have the idea of retaining, so the idea that he was holding on to the Lord. Usually that's used about liquids, um, retaining water. could be sarar, which refers to being the chief or the ruler so that he would be the prince of God, which would connect um, the language used in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 about Jesus, that the government will be upon his shoulders. That government word is the, the possible Hebrew root for this here. We just don't know where the Hebrew name comes from. But because of what God says in verse 28, that's why we define the name the way we do. So even if we can't figure out the root, per se, God says this is the reason for the name. You have striven with God and with men. Now what's the interesting part about that is how he has strived with men has been through deceit. He tricked his brother Esau out of his birthright. He tricked both his brother Esau and his father Isaac out of the family blessing. 
He deceived and he tricked his uncle Laban uh, in order to steal his flock over the span of six years. This is what Jacob does. And even later in the account, as you continue reading after our, our reading ends at verse 30, he goes down and he deceives his brother Esau again, telling him that he would go and he would meet him where Esau is living down south of the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea, and what we will come to know as Edom or Seir. Esau is going to head back to Seir and offer to take Jacob along, and Jacob pretty much said he'd just mosey along at his own pace, didn't want to drive his animals and children too hard lest they die, but that he would meet Esau there. To the best of our knowledge, Jacob never goes to Seir. So his life is filled with deceit. He deceives men, but God takes that and plays on it. He twists it with this event that he has striven with. He has wrestled with the Lord. So his wrestling with God different than his wrestling with men. That he has prevailed. In the Hebrew, literally, it's you were able. So he was able. Able to do what? Not necessarily a victor in the fight, but he was able to persist. He was able to endure. He was able to fight. And that's, that's a good point to pick up that Jacob is enduring in his faith, which is what we'll see Timothy called to by Paul in our epistle here shortly. After receiving this blessing and the changing of his name, which again is that ongoing reminder to him, every time somebody refers to him as Israel, he will remember this moment. Called to remember what God has done to him, with him, for him. He presses. Please tell me your name. And the Lord responds, Why is it that you ask my name? Not really anything given to us about why God refuses. He simply ends up refusing to give him the name. He remains quiet. He blesses Jacob. And that's the end of the account. That's the end of Jacob and God being there together. So verse 30, Jacob calls the name of the place Penael, which in Hebrew literally is face of God. It's this statement that gives us a certainty that it's God he wrestled with, not an angel, not a prophet. He has seen God face to face, and yet he has lived to tell about it. This brings up the account of Moses at Mount Sinai when God tells him in Exodus 33, verse 20, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Jacob recognizing that he has seen the Holy One and yet been spared to tell about it. Isaiah and the call of Isaiah in the beginning of his book of prophecy Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees God, when he recognizes where he is, that he is in the presence of the holy king of heaven and earth, he says, woe is me. He believes himself to be dead at that point because he has seen God. He, a sinner, a man of unclean lips. And yet he receives a special pardon by the burning coal from the altar that the angel places upon his lips. So Jacob, recognizing the importance of what just happened in his life, it's a bit of a strange account. 
because primarily the idea of their wrestling match with each other, that a man wrestled with God, and again, as English typically translates it, prevailed, which gives the impression that he won, that God was not able to win. This is the Lord testing Jacob. We could talk about that language of testing using the word wrestle, right? As the Lord tests our faith, as the Lord causes us to wrestle with our faith. With our epistle reading, we're going to pick back up in 2 Timothy, not quite where we left off. We've actually skipped from well, the middle of chapter 2 all the way to the middle of chapter 3. And I, I wish we hadn't. I know the lectionary doesn't have the opportunity, it doesn't have the time to cover all of Scripture, but we skipped a couple of really important verses for our own context and culture today, and I don't want to start without them. So the text is going to be chapter 3, verse 14, through chapter 4, verse 5. But let me double back real quick. Let's look at verse 12 and 13. So Paul's leading up to this with a section of his own persecution that he's faced, reminding Timothy of what's happened to him as he preached the gospel in places like Antioch and Iconium. And then he said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's verses 12 and 13. In my view, Uh, as we talk about today, all scripture being breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, training in righteousness, these two verses are of great importance for the church in our era. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's holy word. That's God's inspired, inerrant word. That if you want to be Christian, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you will face persecution in this world. That connects to what Jesus tells the disciples in John chapters 15, 16, 17, that region, um, as he's discussing how the world hates him. And because it hates him, it will hate them. If it hated the master, it will hate those who follow the master. We think that we as Christians are going to live this life of great comfort and luxury, and that's actually condemned in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. But the trouble is, is that we, as we think that way, we fall into the, the atheist trap of saying, how could a good God allow suffering? How could a good God allow evil? And so when, when trouble strikes us in our life, we flee. We flee from God, either accusing God of being evil and not caring for us, or we give up. We give up our faith, like the the seed, the parable of the seed that the farmer scatters, and so you've got the seed that lands on the four different types of soil, and some of that seed lands on the path that the birds just snatch it right up, a reference to the devil snatching away the, the, the word from those with hardened hearts. Then you've got the the rocky soil, which at first it it springs up, but when the sun beats on it, it has no root, so it withers and dies. And that's that's the one we're aiming for. I mean, the next one is the, the weeds that choke out the seed. 
and then the last type of soil is the, the the good soil where the word takes root produces a harvest 30 60 100 fold but the rocky soil is persecution the first sign of trouble the first sign of persecution that person's faith is gone they eject they they leave because they'd rather have a life of comfort than persecution and then the 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 trials of this life the cares of this life the concerns of this life uh, choking out the faith of others that we get so caught up in the day-to-day grind we don't have time for god and eventually our faith is is strangled and we don't even realize it's happening really relevant the church in america has decreased by one percent every year technically i guess it would be greater than one percent a year when you do the math but when you look at the span of like the last 15 years it's gone down 15 percent this isn't good but it's because it wasn't good soil we have been rocky soil and we've been weedy soil as as a christian as a parent i do think and the parable doesn't really cover this but it seems we we train our children we tend the soil we help them to be good soil by the work of the spirit and by the work of his word in our family then verse 13 oftentimes people have this impression and it comes from evolutionary teaching really the the idea of evolution is that man goes from bad to worse we started imperfect and over time slowly we get better and better physically mentally all such things technologically we just keep advancing and growing until hopefully someday reaching perfection christian faith actually teaches the opposite that we started perfect adam and eve in the garden and then we broke it, like falling off a cliff. Um, we were no longer anywhere near perfect, far from it. And that evil is actually going to continue to get worse. So if you can picture this graph, you've got the one graph, a line graph. You've got one line that starts at the bottom. That's the evolutionary view. It starts at imperfect. And over time, that line then starts to increase as man is bettering, improving. But the other line that you're going to draw on this chart is to start at the top, which would be perfect instead of imperfect. And that's where the creation story of Genesis chapter 1 begins. And then just shortly after you start drawing that line of perfection, they stayed at the top, you plummet all the way down to the, the bottom. The trouble is, as time moves on, the perspective of Scripture is not that things get better. We don't jump in together with the evolutionary line and slowly start making our way up to perfection. No, the line keeps falling. Gradually, slowly, but it keeps moving downward. That evil people will go from bad to worse. There was a group of Christians who believed in something called post-millennialism, which is a view of the end times that basically believed that Jesus Christ would return only after, post, the idea of the church itself us Christians establishing a golden era in this world 
and that Christ would come back at the end of that golden era to reign. So the idea of these Christians is we had to make the world a better place for Jesus' return. As we'll see it in the gospel text at the end of the gospel reading, Jesus is going to ask the question, right? Um, So Luke 18, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Postmillennialism isn't very common anymore, but you still get the idea from people that they think they can Christianize the earth. I'm not going to try to spoil their their dream there. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to want everybody to believe. God does as well. First Timothy chapter two, verse four. God desires all people to believe and all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But the scriptures are quite clear, it's not going to happen. Sadly. All right, so we skipped those verses. Let's go ahead and look at our text that we do have at hand, starting with verse 14. So I'll read the end of chapter 3 first. We'll talk that through, and then we'll look at the start of chapter 4 after that. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As for you, Timothy, so the world's going to go from bad to worse. There will be persecution. But you, Timothy, remain. Persist, endure in this faith that you have already learned, you have firmly believed, knowing whom it came to you from. He learned from childhood the sacred scriptures, that is the Old Testament that they called the Law and the Prophets. He learned it from his mother and his grandmother. Out of his love and respect and knowledge of who they were and how they carried themselves and how they lived faithful lives, Paul calls Timothy to remain and endure. He's gotten to see Christian faith lived out. He's seen the fruit of their labor. Don't give up for this world. Instead, these sacred writings are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Indeed, that's the point. That is the goal and aim of Scripture, is that we would know Christ and him crucified, that we would see God's plan for our salvation. And the Holy Spirit indeed works through this word to bring that about. Some of you may have that verse in Isaiah memorized, Isaiah 55 verse 11, where God said, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God sent his word to point us to Christ so that we might see and believe. John gets that specific as he writes his gospel's conclusion. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Verse 16 here. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for, we'll get back to the list in just a moment, This is internal evidence that must be taken by faith. 
you're not going to be able to take 2 Timothy 3.16 and go to an atheist and say, see, we should believe this is God's word. It won't mean a thing to them. Right? You can see the cyclical nature of it. This book says it's the book. This book says it's inerrant. Well, why should we believe that? (laughs) We believe it as Christians because we believe in Christ through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who convinces us to believe this to be true. It is only by faith that we can hold these words. Those without faith, they'll see those words and they'll just laugh at it. So you're not going to win any arguments with this one. However, for the Christian, this verse is helpful. It's a reminder to us that the word of God is truly the word of God. It came from him. It is inspired. It is inerrant. Inspired does not mean that God, word for word, stuck it into Paul's head so that Paul could write it down. We don't exactly know how that process played out. We know Paul tended to dictate a letter, that is, that he himself was not a skilled scribe. He did have a little limited ability of writing, as we note at some of the end of his epistles. But typically, Paul would speak and a scribe would write. And that it is indeed the Holy Spirit who inspires the process. Now, just what level that works like, again, we, we can't say for certain. But the Spirit worked, the Spirit guided the Spirit was involved in the whole thing. It's inspired. The Spirit worked through sinful men to record his truth, to point us to Christ. And in this, then, that word inerrant is also important. I-N-E-R-R-A-N-T, error, without error. The scriptures are perfect because they're inspired by God, because they're the word of God, even though they're written by men. As Paul talks at one point about baptism, he'll say that he can't even remember who else he baptized. I believe that's in the introduction of 1 Corinthians. Is it wrestling over who they follow? But that shows a human weakness, right? It shows Paul's brokenness, his inability to recall a detail. But it doesn't take away from the inerrancy of the scriptures. In fact, it shows a care, a level of concern for what was written down by these men. That they didn't just take guesses and and throw stuff on paper. They didn't have paper back then. Different story. But instead, they were very careful. And again, inspired and guided in their work. All right, then we get this list. All scriptures breathed out by God, and thus, I'm adding the word thus there, but it's because it comes from God that it is these things. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Those words reproof and correction looked similar to me, so I went ahead and looked up the Greek on these just so I could be able to to share with you a little bit more uh, detail about these phrases. So we know profitable. Profitable, make make an income, make progress, make gain of some sort. So how are these profitable? How do these things benefit us? How do we gain in faith from the Word of God? First, teaching. That one's straightforward, right? The idea that God's Word teaches us about Jesus Christ, who God is and what he's done for us. 
how he has redeemed us by his most precious blood on the cross shed for us. Reproof. The other ways you could translate the word reproof into English include convict and punish. So it is a a word of correction, which comes next, right? It is a correcting kind of word, but it has a punishment side to it. So the word of God can be used essentially here to judge. That would be the law can be spoken. The law can be heard and a person rebuked for their sin. As we talk about the law, second use of the law, as a mirror that our sin, the law shows us our sin, and thus the mirror kills, the law kills. The third one, correction, could also be translated improvement. So, although a reproof and correction seem similar, again, the ways that they're going here with their, their connotation almost go separately. So reproof went more towards the negative, the punishment side. Correction's going more towards the improvement, the, the betterment side. So seeing the law then as what helps us repent of our sin as the Holy Spirit works that in us and instead turn towards the Lord and the Lord's ways. And that then immediately would roll forward into training in righteousness that we, third use of the law, were guided to know how to live. We're told to love our neighbor. Well, what's that look like? Well, the law tells us, don't murder them. Jesus expounds on that and says, don't be angry with them. Don't insult them. Uh, John expounds on that. So Jesus was Matthew 5, John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, where he tells us even hating our brother is actually murdering him in our heart. So the, the commandments guide us to know how to love and serve others. I don't want to just limit these words to the law either, though. I mean, the gospel, law and gospel, all of scripture is, is useful in this way. A person can hear a law statement positively or negatively. The reproof correction words kind of show that. A person can also hear the gospel in the same way. Jesus died for you, right? This is such great news. And yet a person can hear that and say, why? Why did he die for me? What's that mean? You mean I did something wrong? And suddenly they hear that gospel as, as law. Anyway, um, not to belittle that too much, but all of Scripture, law and gospel, all of it breathed out for these goods for ourselves as Christians, that the man of God may be complete. So a complete faith, not a, a rocky soil faith, as I mentioned before, but a solid, mature faith and equipped for every good work. When you go to work, you need your tools to do the job, whatever your job is, right? A plumber has a set of tools that he needs to use. Uh, A surgeon has a very different set of tools. So does a baker. Our tool is the word of God, the double-edged sword, as it is sometimes called in Scripture, so that we can do the work we've been given to do, teaching, reproving, correcting, training others.
All right, brings us to chapter 4. We get verses 1 through 5. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. I charge you is how he opens this section now. It's the fourth time he's used that language in his two epistles to Timothy. The only time he uses it here in 2 Timothy, but it was chapter 1, verse 18, chapter 5, 21, and chapter 6, verse 13 in the first letter. Paul, as a pastor and spiritual father to Timothy, giving him a charge, a task, a role, a function to go out and do, to serve the Lord. And here, he binds him, right? The basis of this task, the the binding of this charge is before God, Father and Son, acknowledging that this Jesus is the same one who will judge the living and the dead both. And that's something we say in the Apostles and the Nicene Creed as we confess our faith together in the churches every week. By his appearing in his kingdom. So, Timothy's task is bound up in God the Father and the Son, in the final judgment of the living and the dead, in the second coming of Jesus Christ, and in his kingdom and paradise that knows no end. That's a lofty list. And there's a lot of gospel in that list, right? God, Jesus, came into this world to save us. He judges the living, that is us, um, that we would get to be in paradise with him. He is coming again. We get to live in his kingdom forever. There's good gospel in that. But Paul, in essence, is like, he's strapping Timothy to this boat. Um, This is, this is you. This is what the result and outcome of your faith is. Now, now live it. And here's what that means. Preach the word. That's your primary verb in verse two. There's going to be others. We get another list here. We'll take a closer look. But the primary task is to preach. This is what we saw back in Acts chapter 6 as the, the church was recognizing that some of the widows were being neglected and not properly cared for. The apostles decided that it was not wise, it was not good for them to take a break from preaching the word in order to, as they phrased it, serve tables. So pick men of reputable repute from amongst yourselves, of good rapport. And so they picked seven including Stephen and Philip most notably, and that these men would then take that task of of sharing and caring for those who were in need, whereas the apostles would continue to dedicate themselves to preaching and teaching the word of God. Now, Timothy falls then into that, that category as a pastor of those who have that primary function of preaching the word. It's his task to deliver Christ to his people. So if you have a pastor... That's his primary function, is to deliver God's word to you, to point you to Christ in all things. I love that steward of the mystery comment that uh, Paul makes in his letters 
that we as pastors are stewards of the mysteries, that is the caretakers of the holy things of God that we would call the sacraments. That word mystery eventually is where our sacrament word comes from as it goes from Greek into Latin and so forth. A little translation work there. But here is the preaching task then. So preach the word, foundation. Here's the things that come from that. First, a time part. Preach the word in season and out of season. That makes sense to us, the way that this is translated in English. Um, Although we'd stop and say, there's preaching seasons and, and not good seasons. We'll come back to that. But you think about when something is in season, like a certain kind of fruit. Well, it has a season for harvesting. Well, it's great. It's good in that season. But there are other months of the year where you're not going to find apples or you're not going to find bananas. It's out of season for them. Timothy is called to be ready in and out of season. That is basically all times. Right? There's not a time not to be preaching the word. Those two phrases... In season and out of season could also be translated this way. Uh, In season could be translated conveniently, and out of season could be translated inopportunely. So preach the word when it's convenient, and preach the word when it's not, at inopportune times. Now that is something that is a little less uh, maybe confusing to connect to preaching than seasons, there are going to be stretches, seasons of time, where it's convenient to preach the word. People want to hear it. There are going to be times where it's not convenient. For example, with the itching ears that are about to show up in the text. But when Paul is dragged before Emperor Nero in 67, 68 AD to face trial for his faith, was it convenient to preach the gospel in that moment? Or was that an inopportune time? From a worldly perspective, it's an inopportune time. But always be ready to preach. And to the best of our knowledge, he did, and he was killed for it. Now, we can say for certainty, earlier in Paul's life, as he's dragged before others like Felix and Festus, um, the same idea. But I went straight for for his, his end, which then brought him into the comfort of paradise. Anyway, so that's a timing aspect of this. But then there's the reproving, the rebuking, and the exhorting. To reprove is to, uh, also looking at it from the Greek verb here that's used, uh, to bring something to light, to expose something. So we would uh, preach God's word to bring sin to light, to expose sin that it may be corrected, that it may be repented of. To rebuke is to warn. This is what we see in the Old Testament prophets almost always, that they're rebuking the people, warning them about the danger of sin and what happens if they don't repent of that sin. And then exhorting. And that gets a little bit more towards the idea. I don't know that I quite want to say building up, although we certainly see that phrase in the New Testament too. But pointing again to Christ giving guidance, structure to life, urging the Christian to live a certain way through the preaching and proclamation of Christ. We live as Christ, self-sacrificing and loving each other. 
We are to do this, Timothy is to do this, with complete patience and teaching. Again, itching ears is coming up. The people will not always listen. Don't give up hope. Don't stop preaching. Keep going. Yes, there will be some that don't listen. This is so evident from Jesus' own preaching and teaching ministry. You remember when he fed the 5,000? And then they wanted him to be their bread king? And then you get John chapter 6 and he tells them this long and uh, drawn out section about how they have to eat his body and drink his blood or they won't have any life in them. After hearing such a difficult teaching, they all leave. It seems like every single one of them leaves with the exception of the 12. Jesus turns to them and he says, aren't you leaving? That, That one's a paraphrase. But Peter's response is part of our liturgy. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The greatest preacher ever to walk this earth, Jesus Christ. When he preached, people left. Take heart, Timothy. They won't always hear the word. That, then, is when he gets into the warning about them not hearing the word. And that the time is coming, and I don't know how long it took... And again, it already seems to have been in place in Jesus' day. Maybe this is just a pastoral warning for Timothy, like verse 13, that evil people will go from bad to worse, and that it's going to be harder and harder moving forward to preach. That they will not endure sound teaching. They won't want the scripture. They won't want to hear the plan of salvation that God has for them in Christ Jesus. Instead, they will gather for themselves teachers for their own passions. They'll have itching ears. That's a phrase that I think we take for granted that we understand. Um, It's not a phrase we really use. Their ears itch. So you think of your nose, you get an itch on your nose, you scratch it. So you got an itching ear, there's something that you want to hear, so you scratch it, you get to hear what you want. That's what the phrase means and, and makes perfect sense to us in that way. They're not going to want true teaching. They're going to want things that, that just point them to their own sinful natures, to the things that they want to talk about, the things they want to hear. And if you go around, even in Christian churches today, this is pretty much what you'll see of preachers. As they spend little time with the Word of God and a whole bunch of time on stuff that is so worldly, self-help style stuff, um, The famous preachers today, like if we were to go to every Lutheran church in the Missouri Synod and poll the members of the congregation of preachers that they've heard of, any preacher, any any Christian church body, any preacher that you've heard of other than your own, right? And we just made this giant list. I'd be willing to guess that there's a couple of people that might end up on everybody's list, those mega TV preachers. They can have 20,000 people in attendance for a reason. They're not giving sound teaching. They're spewing what people want to hear. Live your best life now. Here's how you can be rich and famous and wealthy and healthy and blessed. And that's what people want. Just like those 5,000 wanted a bread king. They don't want the true salvation of Christ, rescue from sin, death, and the devil. They like their sin. Now, that's a wide brush, I know. Um, Maybe there's an occasional preacher on TV that's not a heretic. 
or not a terrible false teacher. If there is, hallelujah, thanks be to God. Unfortunately, the, the majority of them, not. And maybe the people who stumble their way into one of those stadiums or onto that TV channel, maybe they're not all completely gone, but they're in a dangerous spot in their faith where they're not being fed Christ. Their own ego is being stroked. Their ears are being itched. Their passions are being followed and chased after. And our own passions as sinful creatures, our own passions lead only to death. So they're going to turn away from listening to the truth. They're going to turn away to listening to true things about Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him, John 14, verse 6. And instead, they're going to wander into myths. Myths about man, evolution, uh, where we come from, where we're going. False pagan myths about who created or didn't create. If you enjoy sexual sin, one of those Roman or Greek goddesses might be right up your alley, encouraging you to delight yourself in your pleasures. And that's just one of many examples, but it it leads to destruction. So Timothy is having this warning from Paul. But just as it was as we started the text, so we had the as for you, as a contrast to the evil world's going to do this in verse 13. Now, as for you, Timothy, do this. We have it here. The evil world's going to do this. They're not going to listen to God. But as for you, Timothy, be this. So there's a parallel there that we miss in the text because we didn't include the the couple of verses leading into it. Be sober-minded and endure suffering. Those two are both very common New Testament encouragements to the church, instructions to the church. To be sober-minded is not the opposite of being drunken with alcohol. But the picture is the same. So you think of drinking alcohol too much to the point where you're drunk. You're no longer in control. The warning of the scriptures is pretty easy on that one. If you're no longer in control, who is? You're ceding control of yourself to the devil to the wicked world around you as you might be surrounded by peers or you're ceding control of your body to your old Adam, your sinful nature. That's the dangers of drunkenness. But the picture is quite the same really with any sin, not just alcohol, which is fine in moderation, just don't get drunk. But to to lose control of myself to some addiction, or to lose control of myself to be chasing after a certain kind of sin. That's the caution. That's the warning here. If I'm giving myself over to something of this world, I'm no longer sober-minded. I am no longer able to think clearly because of all the technology in front of me, all the screen time, all the news media, all the video games, all the movies, all the stories coming in and out. I'm no longer sober-minded to be able to discern what is good and right and salutary no longer able to preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. I don't know what it looks like to reprove or rebuke or be corrected. I don't know what it means to train in righteousness because my mind is cluttered with all kinds of junk. Endure suffering. That gets definitely back to verse 12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Hang in there, Timothy. Paul is witness. Paul's going to die probably within a year of writing this letter. Um, roughly, it's near the end of his life he writes this one. Endure, because those who endure receive the crown of life. Suffering, Romans 5 is great on that. Suffering produces endurance, character, hope, etc. Do the work of an evangelist. Now that word evangelist comes pretty much straight out of the Greek. Euangelizo. You is good. Um, and then it's angel. Good angel. The word angel can also mean message. An angel is also a messenger. So it's the good message. We usually say good news. To be an evangelist, to bring the good news, the good message. Do the work of an evangelist. Bring the good news. Bring the gospel. Bring the word of God to people. Preach. Preach the word in and out of season. Fulfill your ministry that is your service. All of these things is what Paul is calling Timothy to do, what the Lord has called Timothy to do. Preach, teach, reprove, correct, train, rebuke, exhort. A lot on the list. The Christian life is a tall order, and we're not perfect at it. But thanks be to God that he chooses to use us for the good of his kingdom and that he constantly forgives us when and where we fall short. Our gospel reading is from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, and really, it's quite a straightforward parable, but let's give it a read. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So again, not a hard parable to unpack here. We have a judge. So one who oversees a court, who sees crimes and and determines right and wrong and who gets punished and who gets some kind of repayment for damages, that kind of thing. And Jesus gives us the detail that this judge fears neither man nor God. It's a parable. Don't read too much into it, but it's a fascinating spot for somebody to be in. This is rare. How many people today don't fear either God or man? Uh, As Christians, we fear the Lord. And honestly, even people who are, are believers of other faiths would still fit into this category that they fear a God or many gods. And so we're basically left to the, the agnostic, the, un, the atheist, the, the unbelieving groups. But even at that, most of them fear men. Right? They fear their governor. They fear uh, police. They fear any kind of authority 
that would have the ability to punish them for wrongdoing. Very rare is the man today who fits this category. Nonetheless, here he is, and there's a widow in his city, somebody who has lost her husband who would have the ability to stand for her, speak for her, defend her. So she has been wronged because she was defenseless to begin with. We're not told what the wrong was. We don't know who her adversary is. But she comes to the judge. She asks for justice, and he doesn't care. He doesn't want to give her any. Verse 4 then tells us the judge's response. I neither fear God nor respect man. It's a parable. This is being brought to our attention simply as a reminder. He likely would not, if this were a real person, have said anything like that first clause. But it's a reminder to the hearer of the text. The detail of the story. What is the source of his mercy? does not come from God, it doesn't come from men, it comes from his own self. He's going to grant this widow her wish. Not because it's right. Not because it's God-pleasing. Not because it's even beneficial to the people of his community. He's going to give this woman her wish so that she doesn't bother him. She's coming day after day. She's pestering him. She's taking time on his schedule. She's bothering him. He's going to fulfill her request so that she leaves him alone. We can talk all we want about how wicked of a judge this is. That's not the point. The point is, if the wicked, even for their own satisfaction's sake, if the wicked are willing to do such a thing, if the wicked are willing to show mercy, how much more will God, who is not wicked, who is good and who seeks good for his people, how much more will God answer our prayers? To pray is essentially to talk to the Lord. So this woman was talking to the judge. She was pestering him. We are invited to pester the Lord with our prayers, to be persistent in our prayer, to keep praying night and day, day and night. And God will care for his people. That's the message of the parable. Now, specifically, Jesus talks about judgment, justice, I should say. He's using the judge reference in this. How does God justly judge the earth? It's twofold. First, it's by Christ's death on the cross. The true enemy, the one who was oppressing us, the one that we needed justice against our adversary for, is sin. Death and the devil, whom Christ defeated on the cross, that unholy trinity that they are. Christ has destroyed them. That is our justice. And he has given it speedily. Your sins are forgiven. They're taken away from you. You get to live forever in Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Now we can also talk about the last day, like Revelation 6, the martyrs under the throne who cry out how long until the Lord avenges them against the ones who persecuted them. And to this, Jesus has said, he is coming soon. So the word speedily can match up with the word soon in that regard, that Jesus will give justice to us soon. He will avenge the blood of Abel and the blood of his people that has been shed upon this earth. 
on the day of judgment when he separates the sheep from the goats, and the sheep are welcomed, that is, those who believe in Jesus Christ. The faithful are welcomed into his paradise, into his kingdom, which knows no end. Whereas the goats, that is, those who have not believed in Christ and those who have not helped his people, instead of being welcomed into paradise, raised to life that never ends, they're raised to judgment. They're doomed, condemned. The vengeance of God will come. But the final note of the text is the sorrow expressed by Jesus. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This connects back to our epistle text, so again, we've got the persistence, but here we also have the itching ears. Will the people of this world endure in their faith, or will they collect false pastors, false teachers for themselves who help them chase their own passions? We're seeing that downturn in the church here, in our culture, in our land right now, and Christians are led to wonder this. But at the same time, the church is blossoming in other parts of the world. Oftentimes right now where it's persecuted the most, in African nations, the church is blossoming the most. So, Christ will return, and he will bring vengeance for his people. He will do so soon, speedily. He will take us to be with himself in paradise. Will he find faith on the earth? That also connects to 2 Timothy. And Paul's encouragement to the pastor Timothy to be ready in season and out of season. Preach the word when it's convenient and when it's inopportune. That's the same for us. To do the work of the evangelist. To share Christ. Even if it falls on deaf ears. Oh.